Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Julia, she, her. And Julia, thanks for coming on the show again. It's been a while. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. It's been so long since you were on the show. I think episode 68 for an old Alice in the... Um, wait. New Alice New in Alice. the Old Wonderland. New <laughs> Alice, Old Wonderland. It's been so long that just before recording, Tori, Julia contacted me saying, like, so are you picking me up to, like, drive to where we're recording? And I was like, oh, I never actually told her that we were recording <laughs> on the internet. It's been so long for me that we've been recording on the internet that I forgot that that wasn't Julia's previous experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ever since the whole quarantine started, so yeah, that's kind of crazy. I thought maybe you were picking it back up again starting this week, but no, evidently that, not yet. We could. We yeah. It hasn't really crossed our minds. Right. Yeah. This um, is easier though. It is, and also it switching over to Discord has opened up a lot of opportunities for remote guests. Uh, which we somehow managed a couple of times when we were otherwise physical, but it was weird. <laughs> uh, speaking of weird, what we've got, I, I have you back for another Alice in Wonderland fanfic. And I mean, we'll come back to that term fanfiction probably, but another Alice in Wonderland based uh, thing to read. And um, I guess we should just jump right into it. We're reading Dungeon Land. That's module EX1 for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, and also the Land Beyond the Magic Mirror, which is module EX2 for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, both written by one E. Gary Gygax. <laughs> now, uh, Julia, should we talk a little bit about our background with this? Sure. Um, since I'm not sure we've said uh, during this episode that I'm your sister, right. uh, we grew Important. up with... Second edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, uh, the late printings, the black bordered versions. Um, and yeah, we, um, we tried to play D&D uh, with, you know, the usual kinds of pitfalls from that age. Uh, and yeah, I, I was already an Alice fan at whatever level uh, by the time we were playing, I'm sure. Uh, but I don't think I had quite the sophisticated appreciation for it that I do these days. And, uh, of course, I don't think Gary Gygax did either, but we'll get to that. <laughs> he might have appreciated them. I just don't know. I just don't know if this venture was the best idea. Well, I, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that, I suppose. But yeah, often I was running our D&D games back in the day. And in retrospect, I'm amazed that you let your three years younger sibling be the DM as much as I was. Uh, it seems to me like it was just one of those situations where whoever is willing to DM the game becomes the DM in perpetuity. And yes. I guess that was me. <laughs> that was, uh, my younger sibling was also often the, the DM as well. So just, yeah, whoever wanted to put the work in. Because, like, he would be the one who would read all the books all the way through and have all the information. I was just like, eh, it's like, I like looking at the pictures playing the game <laughs> we both definitely read all of the books but yes oh, yeah. i did not want to and still don't particularly enjoy dming <laughs> i like well, it but it's just a lot of work yes 
And so we were doing a fairly long-term D&D game um, with a couple of our friends who were siblings of, this, of the exact same like age distribution. Uh, when Wizards started doing an internet push on the internet for like Dungeons & Dragons content on their website, and one of the things they put up for whatever reason, they put up a handful of old first edition modules and you know resources and stuff, they posted Dungeon Land and Land Beyond the Magic Mirror for free on their old D&D website. And thanks to the magic of the Wayback Machine, you can still just go to their posting and download them. The link is going to be in the show notes. And that's the link that I sent to you also, Tori. Um, but the result of that was that I actually ran Dungeon Land and at least part of um, the land uh, beyond the magic mirror for you all when I was like, I don't know, this was year 2000, like 13, something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember if it was fun to fun to play? I remember nothing about the actual Dungeonland module, except that I had the Jack of Hearts escape back into the main fantasy world to be a reoccurring villain, but I never actually got around him being a reoccurring villain again. That would be why I don't remember that. Yeah, that's the only thing I remember. Julie, do you remember anything from playing in this module? No, basically nothing. I, I can't even bring the occasion to mind i just am kind of vaguely aware that it happened fair enough i do remember other bits of our gaming experience but um uh the the amber throne war that we one shot that we did one time that is seared into my memory much more than anything from dungeon land that was also several years later i think yes Uh, how about you, Tori? Were you even conscious of these modules before I sent you this link and said that we're reading them for the podcast? I was not. <laughs> <laughs> I was not aware they existed. Um, to be fair, like I, I never really ran a lot of modules. wasn't really interested in that. I'm more interested in like doing my own thing and making my own campaign. Probably why you know I said DMing was a lot of work. It's because I'll usually create like my own system within the system as well as my own world. <laughs> before I even start a campaign. But yeah, no, I didn't know about this. In principle, this is a very cute idea, a very fun idea. You know, you've got uh, Alice in Wonderland in a D&D trying to make it an RPG, but I think what it's done is made it a little too D&D. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of modules we were not aware of, I hopped onto the drive through RPG article for Dungeonland um, because they usually have a little like history of the product for these PDF reprints, right? For like uh, D&D modules. Usually they're written by Shannon Applecline, author of, uh, author of Designers and Dragons. Designers. Is that right? mm-hmm. um, so, you know, he knows what he's about. And apparently this is the second published D&D module based on Alice in Wonderland because White Dwarf mm-hmm. published um, a D&D module based on it in 19, December 1976, January 1977. Alice in Dungeonland by Don Turnbull. And so now I'm kind of curious about it. it it's got to have been a lot shorter because it was just, you know, in a magazine. Mm-hmm. But that would be an interesting compare and contrast. It would. Yeah, the date on, the, on Dungeonland is 1983. Um, so rather late uh, as, as this particular sequence of things go. And I believe uh, you can uh, confirm this Amato, that uh, these two are, if not the last, at least two of the last uh, modules that Gary Gygax himself uh, worked on. I haven't 
looked into it too thoroughly, but that sounds right to me. Um, yes, the next-to-last module that Gygax wrote around 1982 rooted in the Greyhawk campaign stuff. And so, yeah, this Dungeonland thing has uh, has this, like, weirdly long history, though, because it was part of the Castle Greyhawk dungeon, this, like, portal to the Alice in Wonderland area. And Gygax talks about it in the introduction and such to both modules, that it, it was an established thing in his long-running mega dungeon thing, old-school D&D, like the more or less the original D&D campaign, depending on how you define D&D. Um, and so a lot of players over the years went into this world and mucked around and probably murdered some things. And apparently he also liked to run it at conventions. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> this this does have some marks of the convention tournament type module style of play uh, to me. I, I will note that I just don't... I, I think these modules are both flawed for me. Uh, and uh, although... Interestingly, in different ways, uh, which hopefully we'll have some time to talk about. But like these, they're they're just not Temple of Elemental Evil quality to me. <laughs> they're they're just not. They don't live up to some of the truly great uh, modules, even that get, that Gygax worked on. Are we ready to jump right into the meat of the module here? Because I, I have some talking points that I want to discuss. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, any. Maybe first impressions. Uh, my first impression, uh, rereading these modules and taking notes for this podcast, was I really miss New Alice in the Old Wonderland. <laughs> well, here's the thing New Alice in the Old Wonderland was very concerned with keeping the flavor. And, you know, they didn't always get it 100% right to our critical eye. But, like, I mean, they were, they were pretty much in the ballpark. Whereas in this, Gygax will often, like, describe an encounter, and he'll be like, oh yeah, here's the Cheshire Cat, here's what it wants to do, and so on and so forth. At the very end of the module, he's like, look, I didn't have space to get any of the flavor in, so just just go read Alice in Wonderland and, like, actually get a feel for how these characters talk, and, like, yeah. what, what the flavor is supposed to be. And, I don't like, know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I... maybe I'll comment on that later, too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it also feels like, you know, it was just running through a an old school campaign, like all the players are motivated by treasure and everything is something you can fight. Like, I'm just sort of like, it's not, I don't know. It doesn't feel alice for that reason as well. Here's, yeah, I guess the general impressions is that in both these modules, it seemed like there were two large categories the encounters fell into, which is pretty much just like Alice in Wonderland or pretty much just like Alice in Wonderland, except actually this is a monster that wants to kill you. Right. And those it's like, the... at first, it seems like Alice in Wonderland, but that it's actually just monster fight. And there is a third category that, that happens about three times, where it's basically like Alice in Wonderland, except they give you a side quest. And that's three <laughs> times over these two modules. And that was rare enough that every time it happened, I was like, oh, hey, it's like something for the players to engage with, like, in right. a D&D sense in here. Gosh, yeah. I feel like the thing that stuck out most in my mind was, like, hacking through the brambles. I was like, oh, it's something other than fighting. Or talking, I guess. 
Yeah, I I think that division of types of encounters is really useful, and I'm going to want to come back to it when we're talking about Land Beyond the Magic Mirror. Uh, but here in Dungeonland, the other thing I'd like to comment is just, and since you brought up the brambles, yeah. just how intensely on rails the module is as written, mm-hmm. despite Gygax's discussion of, uh, well, some amount of confusion that's almost going to force different parties to go through a few things in different sequences uh, on the one hand. And then on the other, a mention that, oh, parties might begin at the end of the module and progress backwards to the beginning, uh, but without <laughs> writing anything that would actually allow you to run it that way. Uh, so then you're back into just kind of the very complicated rewriting everything as the GM, uh, which is not unusual, but uh, yeah. Yeah, Julie, I'm glad you brought up that on Rails thing, because the very second thing that Gygax does in this module, and it's a very Gygax move to do, is say, like, hey, players can't fly, they can't teleport, they can't cast spells that would let them move plants around or pass through plants, they can't do anything that would allow them to, like, move off of the paths in here. Also, you can't cast Call Lightning, um, or Animal Summoning. I, I'm not quite sure what the reasoning was for some of these, Spells, I'm but, guessing but... some of it was flavor, um, that summoning up mundane animals, controlling the weather are just not very wonderlandy things to be doing because the GM yeah, okay. wants to be controlling those environments. But Frying people uh, with a lightning bolt is also not a very wonderland thing to do, but that's definitely on the table. Call lightning, I'm wondering whether it has to do with something in Land Beyond the Magic Mirror rather than here in Dungeonland. That could be. Hmm. And so, yeah. I mean, he does the same thing in other tournament modules, especially like Tomb of Horrors. It's like, no, you can't do anything that would let you not go through the room. Like, and so I know that a lot of like OSR people these days are disgusted with this kind of thing, where it's like, <laughs> if the players have a tool, the point should be for them to use the tool creatively. Uh, but that's not actually what actual old school D&D, especially with Gygax, was about all the time. Yeah, I mentioned that I haven't really run a whole ton of modules. I think maybe two in my lifetime. Um, so, but they always went off the module. Like, things would just happen. I don't really understand a style of DMing where you can play actually through a whole module. Because, like, to me, <laughs> it's like you're get, your player's going to do something different. And then you're going to just have to come up with some, a completely different thing, space or environment or something, you know. However, this was weirdly interested with all of the very specific ways to keep the players on track and like all of the things, you know, like, um, like make sure that they can't, like, these are all the reasons why they can't leave the room or make sure that they stay in this environment, no matter what, here's some suggestions to motivate them. I was just like, Whoa. (laughs) Oh, this goes back to the, the beginning, the preface, the dungeon master's preface. Uh, about even just getting the party into the adventure. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Conceal this module within the body of your game material at a convenient point for you, not for the party. Have (laughs) them fall into a pit. (laughs) Suddenly become a perpendicular shaft and drop them into the adventure. It's like sudden unavoidable pit trap to get into this (laughs) adventure. Yep. And the other thing he says there is try to conceal that this is Alice in Wonderland. When you insert this module into your campaign, do so without alerting the players. That is, they will not see a white rabbit at a rabbit hole anywhere, nor will they discover a looking glass to pass through. I have tried these methods, and they put players on guard immediately. And I was like, okay, Gygax, 
But then as soon as I started getting into the meat of this, I was like, how long as a player, how long could you possibly be playing this and not realize it's Alice in Wonderland? And I'm not sure you could get past the first encounter area. Because in the first encounter area, you're falling. You, you, assuming you're going to dungeon land, right? You're not going to land beyond the magic mirror and you're not starting at the beginning. You're starting in area one. You're falling down a shaft slowly as if a feather fall shaft has been as if a feather fall spell has been cast on you. And there's all these little alcoves with miniature seams and stuff in them as you're falling. And like, if you maybe if you've only read the book, that might not stick in your mind. But if, like, if you've seen Disney's Alice in Wonderland or whatever, you're like, oh, it's it's like that shaft in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then as far as the on-rail stuff goes, or maybe GMing style, the two things that struck me about this encounter are, first, the relative kindness. If you have a mundane lantern, you can grab some equipment that is uh, purely for helping you out later on in the adventure when you're tiny. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of cruelty about it. There's absolutely no way to keep any of this treasure in the long term. It just lasts for the duration of exploring the area while you're tiny, and then they disappear. Um, but then there's a note about, oh, well, if anybody's foolish enough to attempt casting a spell while they're falling, uh, the spell fails and the spell slot is burned. Just, just goes away. Because. Just because. <laughs> that would interrupt the adventure, so you don't get to do it, but you still get punished for it. <laughs> yeah. For trying. Which, you should, that's ridiculous. Like, uh, anyway. Sorry, I, I get a little frustrated with some of the, the railsness and the like that one's especially ludicrous because it's like that doesn't make sense. Well, let's breeze along past this first area. There's because there's so many different things to talk about. It's it's everything that is Alice in Wonderland is something we could talk about here and in through the looking glass, right? Mm -hmm. But you go down the shaft, and like you said, Julia, you can you can grab miniature equipment, which I also thought was kind of cool because it's for specific use later. And then there's, you know, the room with the table and the, the drinking things. And it's, it's just like Alice in Wonderland. And this is as far as you could get without realizing. But I did also kind of like the, the way Gygax tried to get the shifting of the room that happens in Alice in Wonderland. He says, if the players don't hone in on the table, if their attention goes elsewhere, then when they look back, like when they're looking around again, then they realize the hall has changed and suddenly it's like a, it's enormous and it's filled with water, even though the water was from Alice crying in the original. But I mean, I kind of thought that was a, a neat way to try to get at it. Obviously the water is filled with things that, well, it's not filled with things that want to kill you. It's filled with things and something that wants to kill you, which is a giant crocodile. Well, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, back to the on-rails comments. Another thing about the adventure being on-rails is that it progresses through Alice in Wonderland pretty much in order. Mm -hmm. uh, so here we're in chapters two and three. Um, I thought the shifting of the room was actually kind of clumsy and it's difficult to figure out what the flow of play is really going to be like here. Um, I suppose it doesn't make a huge difference. You're not locked out of anything permanently. Um, but I think most parties are going to see the changed view and experience things roughly in the order that Alice does. Um, the Pool of Tears is right there, of course. It, uh, nobody grows big and cries it like Alice does. Uh, and that, to me, Alice does a lot of size changing um, around these chapters uh, that 
for the most part, the party isn't going to get to participate in. And that goes with a lot of the scene shifting, the dreamlike changes and things uh, that in the module, the GM just kind of has to impose on the party. And that doesn't really work for me. Um, another interesting thing to note is that uh, there is exactly one portion each of the uh, shrinking drink and the growing bread um, on the table, uh, one for each party member, which means that if anybody tastes the bread, uh, they are immediately locked out of all going uh, to the tiny garden, uh, even if they keep their attention on the table. So getting straight from here to the tiny garden requires that players be playing with meta knowledge uh, because otherwise they would be testing things and they somebody will grow and need to shrink again and they won't all be able to shrink down. Right. Assuming that the party stays together, which is exactly what this assumes. In my mind, when I read that one portion thing, I was sort of like, but could somebody just take all of the growing and somebody else take all of the, you know, like kind of min max your, your, your party there. But yeah, it's because they have to go to a specific area based on size, which is, uh, anyway, I think that's right. Right. Um, more or less, uh, if you go around, you will eventually get size changing mushrooms from the caterpillar. Oh, right. Uh, right. uh and that's the other way into the tiny garden. Well, um, when, you, when you shrink, you leave behind all your equipment. So if, if one person messes up, like it seems most likely from an old school gameplay perspective that a um, hireling like or henchman or something is left behind to guard the stuff while everybody else ventures through. Mm -hmm. Gygax does at least tell you don't mess with their stuff as the GM. Everything's safe that gets left in this room. Right. Uh, yeah, but which the is, players don't know that. <laughs> that's true. And the way the rest of the adventure is written probably shouldn't trust it either. Uh, should we go on to the Pool of Tears? Um, assuming that you don't do everything perfectly to be able to jump straight through the door into the tiny garden here. Um, uh, and let me just note that in the book, that doorway is what leads into uh, the playing cards, the flowers, the roses, the croquet ground, uh, and all of that stuff later on. In this adventure, it doesn't. Um, it goes to a kind of side area with some extra stuff to explore. Uh, so the flow isn't literally exactly the same as the book, uh, but it does hit notes more or less in order. Uh, at least if you go through the changed view in the Pool of Tears. Yeah, we talk about the Pool of Tears, except that I find it boring in the book and here. Yeah, no, there's, there's the five animals. Um, uh, they don't want to kill you while you swim. Uh, they do run out and kill you as soon as you get out to the other side of the pool, though. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, I, I'm not sure. I thought that was uh, only if you messed with them or something. Uh, uh, no, it's... Um, oh, you're right. Uh, they will rush in a horde to attack. It will take the creatures three rounds to come out of the water. They will then rush in a horde to attack on the fourth round, unless all intended opponents have already exited the area. Mm. Right. Except for the crocodile, right? Who, yes. The little crocodile is a giant crocodile who attempts, who waits for the players to pass through the center yes. of the pool. But apparently, if you don't go through the center, the crocodile doesn't attack you. 
Uh, that's right. The crocodile right, right. is just there to punish you for trying to do something different right. than swim straight through the middle. Um, <laughs> it is, of course, a reference to How Doth the Little Crocodile, uh, which Alice does indeed recite here, I believe, in uh, chapter two or three. Um, I also note that it's a quantum crocodile where it, it's waiting for prey to attempt to pass to the left or the right of the swimming monster oh, in right. the center of the pool. <laughs> Regardless of the direction the players take, he will be there and waiting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I like the gonna... idea that if they go both directions, you know, they split up, that he'll be the, in both places at the same time. Anyway, sorry, go on, Mono. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, if you can't do that in Wonderland, where can you, I guess? Right. right. Oh, and this introduces something that is going to pop up uh, several times through the course of these modules, which is uh, things that Alice doesn't directly encounter that are just in poems that either she or one of the other characters recite uh, do show up as generally things to kill. All the monsters will, and the Jabberwocky and stuff. We um, will run into that, especially in uh, Land Beyond the Magic Mirror, and I will have a few things to say about that. But again, in Dungeon Land later on as well. I like sort of understand that in the sense of like, if this is a game where the goal is to fight monsters, but yeah, it's also just makes it so boring to me in a way. I don't know. Maybe it's just not my style of campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the animals swimming around the pool of tears um, are just there to add time pressure and possibly extra combat. There's, no long tail, no caucus race, nothing. They just swim out and try to kill you. Uh, the next section of the module, uh, if we can move on to it, is the tiny garden. Yeah. Uh, which is a little bit out of order, but it does have, I think, a couple of things that are from the book. Um, most notable, well, I don't know if we even want to take this uh, encounter by encounter. There's I don't think we some should. kind of random stuff um, in there. Uh, there's uh, a magical water events. that yeah. does mostly annoying but not terribly harmful things. There's an encounter with flowers that kind of looks like it's lifted from uh, a section of Through the Looking Glass that will appear again in Land Beyond the Magic Mirror. Uh, the, this is, of course, where we get the introduction to Charldos, the senile archmage. Um, and let me comment here that another one of the things about these modules that really annoys me is the way that it has to explain. Gygax just has to explain a lot of the things that happen in the book in D&D terms. Mm -hmm. So there can't just be a white rabbit. He has to be a senile archmage who has polymorphed himself into a white rabbit. That is one of the few things I remember from this module is that wasn't the white rabbit a 20th level wizard? And yes, yes. the white rabbit was a 20th level wizard. He does at least try to run away for the most part instead of kill the party unless they really do try to kill him. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's like, why? I mean, look, if he's in such a hurry, he has time stop memorized twice. Just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually a really good point. 
And I kind of think, you know, it's almost clever to have, you know, the rabbit's not really a rabbit and like, it's kind of a secret, you know, and they might discover it. But then again, it's like, well, you know, he's not really anything interesting either. Mm-hmm. No, he doesn't have any motivation. There's nothing he wants. Right. He's just a guy who is senile, I guess, and likes being a it's rabbit. Just a guy. Yeah. In, in this case, he's even pretending to be a statue just so that people don't bother him. But, you know, that's it. Right. There's no, there's no gripping player interaction here. It's just like right. a thing that is there. It's like, it, it's almost clever. But then it just doesn't go anywhere. Sorry, I get a little frustrated because I do think that like some of the ideas are here are not bad. They just they're not carried to a point that makes it like interesting for the player, I guess. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one the next thing that is in this section that does suggest that players might want to be doing it in this order uh, is. um, uh. The cottages uh, are from chapter four. Uh, So since the Pool of Tears was chapters two and three, um, this would be the next big story beat. Uh, They're just retainers of Charlotte's, the Archmage, Servants of the White Rabbit. Um, This is where Bill is, uh, the lizard who Alice kicks out of the cottage. Um, They don't do anything particularly interesting. Uh, they have their own cottages, and then there's a large house where the white rabbit lives. Uh, that's just a death trap. <laughs> Nothing else, just a death trap. Well, yeah, and it's very specifically a death trap that the wizard set up as a death trap for anyone who might want to, say, loot his house. You walk in, it's an illusion, the the walls close in on you, and um, hope you have the right spells prepared, because otherwise all of you are dead. That is it, yeah. I guess. Yep. And I mean, it's it's for a level nine to twelve party, so um, it's not. There are a number of options given. It's like dispel magic or enlarge will cancel the shrinking, uh, and enlarge is a pretty normal level one spell for a lot of wizards to have prepared. So it's not it's not unreasonable. Sure, you can save yourself with wall of stone, um, but you know, there's other there's other spells that won't work, like teleport, because we just said that they couldn't. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's not the worst. It's just, you know, not the kind of game we are used to playing. I, I feel like in a lot of these encounters, I was looking at it saying like, oh, this has a good chance of killing some party members or, you know, doing some real damage. I'm thinking of like the Jack in the Pulpit encounter back in the garden we didn't talk about. But I feel like, you know, there's all these D&D assumptions that we've drifted away from that Gygax would not have. It's like you've got a cleric with Ray's dead in the party. Like, people can mm. die a couple times. It's not that big a deal right. until you're out of resources. Mm-hmm. And back to the on-rail stuff, this is also where we get uh, our nice little discussion about uh, the hedge and players trying to get through it <laughs> that I think Tori brought up earlier. Um, right. Uh, and I'll, I'll just summarize it with the last... Well, no, I... I, it's, we might just it's want to a read very similar kind of on rails where it's GM fiat, but it is dressed up in uh, in universe supposed explanations that amount to you can't because I said so, but you never actually say that, uh, and it includes even a little pre written passage 
uh, with the note, reading the passage above should end attempts to move beyond the hedge. Yeah. yeah. It's- I think that's why it stuck out to me, because I was just like, this, I was like, I'm sensing the pattern now. Like, you're just stopping the players from doing things. Like, and, anyway. and I think what you're saying, Julia, is that like modern role-playing philosophy, and even for D&D, would be that you can trust your players, you're all friends, you're all there to have a good time. And so instead of, you know, Gygax's attitude is like, oh, it's really hard to cut down the hedge and, you know, it grows back immediately and, like, you know, you're going to get scratched up and all these things, and that's why you can't do it. The modern way would be, hey, guys, there's nothing beyond that hedge and that's not where the adventure is, so, like, can, let's explore a different way. Or, or even just, like, what are you trying to accomplish here by cutting through the hedge? Because maybe, like, <laughs> we can work something out. Right. Or even just, like, for me, it would be, be a little creative. Like, if there's nothing there, that just, like, put something there. Maybe something, uh, you end up back in the module or back in wherever you want the players to go or whatever. But I don't know. Just come up with something. Be creative. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even running a module, I would think that. And this is, like, one of those things. It, it, what it does do very well is it covers all its bases. Like, every time it gives the, the person running this campaign does not have to be creative at all because all of their bases are pretty much covered well except for the i i think i detected some holes in the module that make me wonder what's supposed to happen Mm. uh largely around limited availability size changes at different points or kind of but but that i think has to do with poor organization of the module more than anything else it's not written to be open-ended it's just I think there might be a couple of holes or it's buried in text halfway on the other side of the book that <laughs> it's hard to, hard to connect. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on to section four? Yeah, let's do section four. It's called The Woods of Trees and Giant Fungi. And again, we don't have to touch in every single like area described on the map, but I feel like you know, all of our many, many Alice in Wonderland fans who are listening to our show because we talk about Alice in Wonderland stuff, right? Um, are going to want us to touch in on the main characters here. So, like, we've got the caterpillar. Mm. Either of you want to say something about him? Area C, huge blue mushroom, <laughs> the caterpillar. Um, yeah. What? So, one of the Tori, things you any said... reactions? Yeah. Um, well, I honestly, this was the point where I started to get like, I hate saying this because I feel like I've just been saying I was disappointed, but this is where I was, like, kind of the most disappointed because I was like, oh, the caterpillar, this is the first time you get that thing we're talking about, really, like, well, not the first time, but, like, the biggest time, I think. The caterpillar just ends up being a monster that wants to kill you. Yeah, we are on to chapter five, by the way. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I guess the one almost saving grace of this encounter to me is that it's a monster that wants to kill you in a slightly weird and unexpected way. Uh, That's the thing. It is an interesting encounter. Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of the caterpillar, you're going to be like, no, why is it a, how do you say it? Behir? Behir? I have no idea. Uh, The answer is because Gygax wanted everything to be an existing creature if possible. And so instead of a worm, it's a dragon worm, breathes lightning, Mm -hmm. whatever. And it's an interesting encounter because he's blowing out smoke rings that have magical effects if you touch them, and they only go in, an, in a repeating pattern of six, and the first one is good, 
So, you know, it's trying to trick the players into touching the other ones. And then he's going to try to stay, like, innocent and harmless until necessary, and then jump on the party and try to kill them. And it's not, it, like I said, it's not an interesting, like, in the, at the level of D&D tactical encounter, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But you do waste the caterpillar. That is going to happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> largely because you yes. need the mushroom. Oh, I should note, though, that this is happening outside of the shrunken area. We are not in the tiny garden anymore, um, which is a little bit different from the book, where the caterpillar is um, how tall? Uh, <laughs> a couple inches tall, because Alice comments somewhere in here. Um, three inches. Three inches is such a wretched height to be. It is a very good height indeed, said the caterpillar angrily, rearing itself upright as it, as it spoke. It was exactly three inches high. Uh, we are not in a shrunken area. This is a large yeah. monster, and all the players are probably full size. I guess um, because they didn't want to have a he didn't want to have a shrunken monster, and he wanted to use this creature. I don't know. There's not a lot of small monsters in D and D. I guess. Here's my last yeah. comment about the caterpillar, though. Under treasure, like you said, Julia, it's got the mushroom and you're going to need that, or at least want it. The last line is, the hookah is of no value except to a bet here. And as a D&D &D player, let me just say, I'll be the judge of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Also, what if you encounter another one, you know, some point? Oh, I mean, we're taking that hookah. If oh, we yeah. kill the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland, we're taking the hookah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're probably getting a 5,000 gold piece gem out of it also because of the initial trap right yeah because the, the first smoke ring turns into a valuable necklace uh, immediately after the hookah is the Cheshire Smilodon <laughs> yep and uh, the important thing to know about the cat is that it wants to kill um, you he wants to kill you yep <laughs> Uh, the beast is hungry, so he will seek to kill and devour a party member if possible. He is intelligent, um, has the various expected uh, effects, which are, of course, described in terms of spells, etherealness, dimension door, and invisibility. Um, mm -hmm. uh, can dimension door between trees primarily and a couple of other places. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's going to stalk you and try to kill someone. Um, it at least does have very useful treasure, because one of the things that Gygax established early on is that, no, you can't cast Teleport or Dimension Door, but if you find something that does it in Wonderland, you can use it, because that magic is native to the plane. And I don't know how you're going to figure this out exactly, but the cat has 20 whiskers, each of which are good mm -hmm. for one Dimension Door that works in Wonderland. And that's... One of the best tools that I noticed in these modules for actually doing clever or creative things in Wonderland in terms of bypassing or avoiding or having, like, you know, creative solutions to problems. I think that's right. Although I think it's unlikely that you get this very early unless the GM is kind of letting you kill stuff. Because the cat should be able to get away pretty easily. Yeah, between etherealness, invisibility, and dimension door. Yeah, because it's probably going to show back up again, is the idea. Right. Which, you know, consistent with Alice. You know, you don't want to kill off the main characters right away, I guess. Major characters, yeah. I mean. I mean, Lewis Carroll waited until the middle of Through the Looking Glass to kill off Alice. So you've exactly. got to really pull <laughs> yourself back there. Uh, 
Anyway. I'd just like to take a moment to touch on, at the end of this section, there's the wandering monster table. And, yep. you know, the concept of a wandering monster table in Dungeonland sounds good. What's on it? A dragon? That's like a lion dragon thing. Giant poisonous snake? Two giant phase spiders? Two stag beetles? Or three giant lizards? That's yeah. the wandering monster table. Um, I yeah. know. I know. That's nothing. Uh, like, I mean, it's a bunch of D&D &D fights that would probably be boring, but that's literally all it is. Like, I know the the function in the resource management game is just to make sure that you can't dawdle too much, but, like, it could have been something. Well, the function in this resource management game, it comes immediately after the special note on the map edges, which have particularly slow uh, hex-level movement, oh, um, yeah. is, again to punish the players for trying to go off the edge of the map. Yes, perhaps yeah. more giant phase spiders will change your mind. Ah, uh, well, yeah, no. Yeah. All right. So the whole next area, which is five, the wilds of Dungeon Land. What chapter in Alice in Wonderland are we on, Julia? Um, we uh, just finished chapter five. The first encounter in Wilds of Dungeon Land, the giant dog is actually back to chapter four. Uh, the end of chapter four is where that puppy shows up. Uh, but otherwise, we're on to chapter six with the Duchess, and then I think straight through to the end of the book, uh, more or less in order as written. Um, yeah, so chapter six through to the end of the book. Yeah, so you can visit the Duchess. There's no reason to. She doesn't care about you. You don't care about her. The Cheshire Cat is there. It, it in this context, does not try to attack you either. Um, the baby is It's a... the Duchess's pet. Right. Yep. So the baby is a werebore, because of course it is. But, like, there's really yep. just... There's no hooks here. It's like, you can hang out with the Duchess if you want, I guess, and her quotuan staff, because they're fish, and they... There's and already fish people in D&D. &D. And bullywugs, yep. because everything is a D&D &D creature if it can be. But there's just nothing there to do. At least it's less of things that want to kill you. I mean, the giant dog will only attack you if you attack it, so. <laughs> yeah, and same with the Duchess. Yeah. The Duchess yes. is yeah. not evil and does not try to kill you, um, unless you try to attack them. Uh, there are an awful lot of footmen. Um, <laughs> there's uh, the cook and baby the werebore, uh, as you mentioned. Um, there's a tiny bit of gold um, uh, of treasure, uh, if you kill the Duchess, she's got six pieces of jewelry, um, and there's three more uh, scattered around the house, which uh, I believe has a rather extensive map uh, for pretty much no reason. Uh, the large manse does not get descriptions, it just gets two of the four pages of maps uh, in the middle of the module. Um, uh, with uh, two additional pages of maps on the inner covers uh, and a few other maps towards the end. Uh, but it just takes up a lot of space for players to waste time in. Yeah. As far as I can yeah. tell. You I guess to invent something interesting, but... Yeah. You'd have, this is where you'd have to be creative because there's no description of what's in all these rooms. And Gygax says you can place additional treasure with care throughout the manse if you want to as a DM. But since there's nothing else interesting in the manse, I don't want to encourage the players to go explore it as the DM. Right. 
Like, I want to get him back to the stuff that's described. Yes. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, I, I have a physical copy of Dungeonland here in front of me. Uh, and it turns out these, uh, these innermost pages with the maps on them are actually perforated uh, to tear out. Oh. I didn't okay. quite realize that. That makes sense. Andy? Now, next, after that, we've got the Mad Tea Party. Yes, we do. Now, this falls broadly under the category of normal except they want to kill you. That's not completely exactly true, but if you sit down and start hanging out with them, which I might want to do, like, bad things are going to start happening and it's going to end in combat. Yes. Because... Yeah, yeah. the hatter is going to get bored, start throwing hats. One of them is going to be an executioner's hood, which is introduced as a new monster in this module. Mm -hmm. um, or do... What's the other... None of the others are super dangerous. And some of the hats are actually kind of entertaining. Uh, the hat of occupation uh, is amusing because it uh, there's four different types, one for each of the major classes. And uh, if you're wearing one, then uh, you believe that you're that class, which <laughs> does open yeah. some good role-playing, uh, especially during a combat encounter. <laughs> and I, this also kind of raises something I noticed. You mentioned the Executioner's Hood, which is a monster that looks like a hood that, you know, goes over your neck and then tries to strangle you. And it's going to show up again in, like, some, you know, monster manual somewhere. I forget where. One of them, like Monster Manual 2? I don't know. And also, there's, like, one of these hats that the hatter randomly throws out is the Hat of Disguise. It just, you know, makes you be able to change yourself to look like other people. But, like, I remember that from the treasure, the random treasure listings in the AD&D 2nd Edition DMG. It's like, yes. there's, there's various things being introduced in these Wonderland-themed modules that then just get folded into baseline D&D by the time I was actually playing it. The Deck of Illusions does, too, I believe. Yeah, that's um, And... Uh, there's a couple of things in uh, Land Beyond the Magic Mirror that last like that, and several that don't. And yeah. this probably isn't the exact time to mention it, but it just made me think at one point how fanfic Dungeons & Dragons is, just baseline in its very conception. Be Appendix N. Yeah, Appendix N. It's like, people don't always think about it this way, but what they were doing when they made D&D, &D, which is now so much its own thing, is just drawing in all these ideas and monsters and concepts and things from all these fantasy things and, you know, books they liked at Alice in Wonderland and whatever into this soup. And that soup has now congealed into its own, like, you know, entity. But it's just really interesting. Yeah. Um, coming back to the hats just for a second, um, I thought this was where things started to be a little bit clever, actually. Because, like, the Hat of Disguise actually starts functioning of its own volition and disguising you as something else, right? But as the player, you're not aware that's happening. So your party members are maybe reacting, you know, like, I'm sure the DM could play that up in a, a strange way. Like, say, like, your party member has been replaced by, a, you know, a, a goblin or something. <laughs> something cleverer than that. Yeah, and then similarly, the Hat of Command works at this meta level between the GM and the player rather than kind of... Or as much, if not more, than uh, at the in-game level, at least as it's written here. Um, uh, the Hat of Command just makes the wearer think they should take charge of things. But the way this plays out is, as DM, 
simply begin directing questions to the individual, urging him or her to give the other players the benefit of his or her thinking, comment favorably on whatever is said, etc. Encourage assumption of leadership by the individual's character, especially where it is obviously going right. to cause the party to act in an unfavorable <laughs> manner. And I can imagine that just completely not working for a lot of parties, and I can also imagine it working way too well for a lot of parties. Yeah. There's all kinds of interesting treasure here because, like, you can end up getting a deck of many things out of the Hatter's hat once you kill him if, if you look very carefully, you know, whatever, if you jump through a few hoops. And it has some extra cards in them that, if they're drawn, return you several encounters back with everything as it was before you actually, you know, encountered it. And I thought that was cooler until I noticed that your damage and spells don't come back. But even so, it's just, there's all these, like, weird little tidbits in here. I could still see interesting things happening with, like, the players in certain encounters being able to go back and redo it with all this other knowledge they've gained. I mean, maybe. You can start yeah. getting infinite copies of the deck, deck of many things from killing the Hatter repeatedly and keeping drawing the cards from it. Yep. Um, yeah. Should we finish out this encounter? The yeah, the March Hare and the Dormouse both they'll participate in combat if combat starts, but they're also both traps by themselves. Talking to the March Hare has a chance of confusing you for several rounds. Not such a huge deal. Well, confusion um, can mean you attack someone nearby, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely it can. It could trigger the combat or just yeah cause extra damage inside of the party. Uh, the Dormouse is a little bit worse. Um, uh, can put you into comatose slumber just by being near it. Uh, and, yep. The house that's... is a trap. The house and the house is another death trap, yep. yeah. of course. Turns into a giant caterpillar and starts digesting you, so, you know, be careful before you do anything in this module. <laughs> uh, it's a very deadly module and then you um then you get to the what do you call it the royal it's called the park right um uh in the module it's called the park um there's there's a, a door in a tree trunk that takes you to another hall that then takes you uh there oh mad tea party of course by the way is chapter seven um uh, Alice does, at the end of that chapter, walk through uh, a door in a tree, uh, finds herself back in the long hall. It's not literally exactly the same long hall in the module. It's a separate uh, area, but it can lead you back to the tiny garden. Um, Alice goes, shrinks herself and goes into the tiny garden and thus gets to the croquet ground. Uh, that's not what happens here. There's one door to the tiny garden, which we already covered, and then a different full-size door that takes you to the croquet ground. Uh, but yes, yeah, so now we're on to chapter eight, the cro croquet ground and painting the roses red. So here on the grounds, it's the first of several times where enormous amounts of wealth are being dangled in front of the players. And that's significant because this is still, I think, the one gold piece equals one experience point era of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I believe see. that we're still there. Yes, I think first edition AD&D still is. And so players certainly have their eye on the prize in terms of, you know, treasure. And 
these roses that are being painted red, uh, they're silver to begin with, and they're worth 100 gold pieces each, which is not terrible. And then once they're painted, they're worth 2,000 gold pieces each. And there's quite a few of them. And, you know, it says they're very fragile, but even so, like, this is one of a few times in these modules where it, it could be a big payday if the players just start killing all of the guards and stealing all of the roses. If they do that, they are going to have to fight their way through the entire end of the adventure. There's going to be no trial, yes. nothing. They're just going to be killing stuff straight through to the end. I don't think Gygax actually wants them to do that, but it's no. like, it's a temptation is all. I think that is how this is presented. It's a temptation to ruin the adventure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether I'd call that good GMing, <laughs> personally. Not, not really, because something I... I I'm glad you pointed out that I didn't know because I, I really started in like third edition that the gold was could translate to, you know, that your wealth could translate to XP makes more sense because I was a little frustrated with how much the players are supposed to be treasure focused. It makes a little more sense. Yeah. But like if your players are treasure focused, like this system implies, like everything that's set to motivate them is treasure, then they're going to do that. So, <laughs> uh, OK, well, we'll get a few more chances. Um, what's probably going to happen is that they'll get invited to the croquet game. The croquet game's a disappointment, though, because it's basically just, hey, you're going to play in the croquet game, you all take some damage. If you yes. miss with the flamingo, it bites you, you take some damage. If you hit the hedgehog, it might hit another player, they take some damage. And that gets old real fast. And hitting... Yeah, hitting the hedgehog is annoying. You have to... It's, it's a roll under your deck score on 2d10. Uh, so low dex players, it's going to be annoying. Yeah. Um, uh, and you're, yeah. you're forced to take at least four swings. Uh, everybody has to swing four times uh, before the game is over if you want to play through the rest of the adventure without Pissing trying off to kill the royalty. Everybody. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Speaking of the royalty, the queen, the red queen is a 13th level cleric and the red king is a uh, 14th level wizard. Uh, uh, queen, queen and King of Hearts. Remember which oh, yes, uh, not, land we're in right now. I forgot which land we were in. Yeah, yes, excuse me. Although, but... also remember that we are full size. All of these are humans and not playing cards. Right. Oh, and the Executioner is a an 11th level assassin. Mm -hmm. um, the men-at-arms can get pretty high level, too. I mean, they go up to level 7, which is not nothing. 50, 60 uh, points. Here, yes. Uh, but if they all get called in, they go up to level 10. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh right, because, uh, because it's every just, every it's just card, card number, every card number is that level fighter. That's kind of clever, actually. It is clever. I have to say, this is gonna be this is for a ninth to twelfth level party, right? Mm -hmm. That's gonna be a That's little right. bit rough for them if they have to fight through all of these people. Like, well, yes, and that's why you're not supposed to fight when they come out. Even right. if you've been picking the flowers, uh, they're the players are called to stand down submit to judgment, and then you basically just move straight on to the trial uh, in a slightly revised form. Um, I'll also note the 20 zeroth-level crossbowmen that are backing up the soldiers. Uh, mm -hmm. The soldiers might look good, but we're in an era of pretty flat math, and having 20 crossbow bolts flying at you uh, is not trivial, even if they're zeroth-level fighters. Mm -hmm. Oh, speaking of people getting pissed off at you and stuff, one thing Gygax does note several times is that, like, look, if they get in a scuffle with, like, the Duchess but then the Duchess is still alive or whatever and comes to the party, don't worry about it. She doesn't care. She doesn't remember. It's just like, 
what Gygax says is it's dungeon, it's kind of Wonderland logic where like a new occasion is like a new occasion with a new context. But also I think he just doesn't want to worry about more variables. Like I think that's right, with the exception that uh, there is a mention in here somewhere, I think, that uh, if you have a combat or, or, you're, or you steal something and get caught or somebody uh, gets mad at you at some point, they're, they're going to testify against you at the trial. Mm. Uh, but fortunately, that doesn't really matter because we'll get to the trial. <laughs> right. And well, what's built in, I forgot what's built into the croquet party to kind of uh, make sure things don't escalate too far is that this, the Smilodon cat or its ghost, says in parentheses, <laughs> if you have killed it, which I thought was clever, shows up to smile at the queen and yes. will suggest to the party that they go to the next area so that things cool down. So I feel like that's probably the, like, I don't know, the way the DM can say, like, hey, let's not fight all these guys. That's right. Although that is, to me, slightly annoying because it's just so close to the book. Um, yeah. It's, it's really exactly what happens. Cat shows up, smiles at the queen. Queen wants the cat's head cut off. King gets mm -hmm. into an argument with the executioner about whether that's possible when only the cat's head is there to begin with. Um, uh, and uh, the Duchess, uh, I believe, yeah, the Duchess walks away with Alice uh, and gets on to the next area, which is the Mock Turtle. Now, the Mock Turtle here is the first of what I can remember as three times in these two modules, like I said, where... There's friendly people who want to give you a side quest to actually, like, get some treasure or whatever. And so that was, at this point, like I said, a really nice change of pace. But there's not much else interesting there. It's like, you meet the griffin, leads you to the mock turtle. The mock turtle is very sad because it's actually someone who has been polymorphed by the senile archmage into a... Oh, yeah, I wanted to comment on that. This is another example of every uh, of things getting explanations that don't need them. Yeah. The mock turtle was polymorphed by the white rabbit. Uh, the March Hare also polymorphed by the white rabbit. That's why they're crazy. Okay. Sure. <laughs> we had, yeah. yeah, like, blame the wizard, which, okay, fair, but still. <laughs> things, I don't think these things needed the... It, it feels like Gygax went out of his way to give some of these characters the most boring backstories possible. It seems very antithetical to to the whole feel of Alice to like actually explain these these insanities, right? Like, oh I yeah, agree. there's a reason for it. It's like, no, it's part of the world. Like, well, although it does at least give the mock turtle this motivation that Amato was talking about. Yeah, at least it's like it can't breathe underwater anymore. It needs you to go fetch this thing from underwater so that it can breathe underwater again. And it, it can actually lead you to seaweed that you eat so that you can breathe underwater. And at least you're eating a random thing to be able to go into a new area. So that's Alice-y. It's not mm -hmm. the it's not a super interesting side quest. But I, like I said, I just liked a, a change of pace from the things that had been happening beforehand. And it is a way for the players to actually genuinely get treasure. There's a 20,000 gold piece chalice down there underwater, as well as like a helm of underwater action, some good stuff. Yeah, bunch of, bunch another 2,000 gold pieces in, in pearls. Um, uh, the, what you fight here is four giant lobsters. Why are you fighting four giant lobsters? Because of the lobster quadrille. Right. Which is the poem here. Uh, in this chapter, oh, actually, chapter 10, its own chapter, the lobster quadrille. A quadrille is a type of four-person contradance, uh, essentially. So four giant lobsters, that's what you have to kill. 
you know. Because it's a reference. It's definitely a lot of effort to put in those references. I will give him props for that. I like the consistency because every poem shows up that I can, well, okay, that's not true. Oh, no, no. Not every um, poem shows up. Father William doesn't show up. Okay, a lot of the poems show up. There's even like a busy, there's a busy bumblebee at some point, like I'd, a giant bee. I'd say several of the poems show up, but flipping through, there's a lot of poems in these books. Okay. Uh, I, I more in Through the Looking Glass. Um, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of poems that I don't think get referenced in Through the Looking Glass. Well, that's, that's a shame because, um, you know what? I do want Father William to show up as an NPC and try to sell you something. Mm -hmm. um and then also for the side quest the players really should do the side quest as written Mm -hmm. because the alternate treasure if you don't want to return it uh to the mock turtle is you get to have a married grant you a wish and it's going to twist it and it nobody's going to have a good time yeah evil wish granter don't don't even try now to be fair you can take that and the other treasure if you kill if you don't return to the mock turtle so there's that. Um, but yeah, after that, it's this big set piece finish for this whole module, which is that you are summoned to the, the trial about the stolen tarts. And there's a few things here. Um, for one thing, Gygax really wants you to do it. Like, that's, that's how the module's really, really trying to end. Like, if the player was just like, no, we're not going to the trial, I don't even know what one would do as a DM. Oh. Um, I think there's actually something about there. Is there a note about this? It seems like there were notes about a lot of this stuff, but I, I'm not. Yeah, no. I mean, you can get out of it by killing enough people, either earlier <laughs> or right here. If you've oh just God. murdered everybody up to this point, there's not going to be a trial. I suppose. Um, and there is <laughs> a comment fair. to that yeah. effect. Uh, <laughs> there's also a comment about the palace being a potential future adventuring area for if you come back. Uh, but for this particular encounter, um, you must prevent undue adventuring in this area, at least for the first trip through the module, because events must flow a certain way. Mm-hmm. Now, That's a quote. <laughs> the other wow. thing is that the prince is a uh, so the, the prince is what would be the knave right the knave of hearts who is here the prince is that in the original I don't believe it is in the original no um, um, the jack is interpreted to be a prince in the adventure but yeah I, I don't he's a level 12 there's thief. a lot of talking that doesn't uh, right he's a level 12 thief with you know good thief equipment he's evil he's after these tarts i don't quite understand the flow of events because i thought he stole them already but he stole one whatever he stole one yeah and the tarts this is like the second of kind of the the pc bait things because the tarts are gem encrusted works of art that are each worth a significant amount of money um twenty thousand yeah twenty thousand each yeah that's quite a haul if you can get all eight of those tarts. Um, and what is supposed to happen, what Gygax wants to happen, is for the king to be reading the charge, you know, the, the, the whatever, all on a summer day. How does it start? Where is uh, this? Uh, uh, the queen of hearts, she made some tarts. Right. The queen of hearts, she made some tarts all on a summer day. The knave of hearts, he stole those tarts and took them quite away. And... 
Gygax wants one of the players to chime in while you're reading that. Then he wants to jump on you as if you said that in character instead of out of character, even though there's no way your character could possibly know that in character. Right. And for that to be the pretext for the Jack to peg the crime on you, because how could you possibly have known the rest of this if you were not in on it some way, in some way? Yeah, he was so careful up to this point to have the players do everything he wanted, but there's no guarantee that this is going to happen. None. That's right. And he does talk about, oh, if this doesn't happen, then the trial proceeds in this other way. Except then, Amato, you're probably going there too. Continue. Regardless of the actual dialogue, I'm reading from the text again. uh, The quote trial will eventually come down to this situation exactly what Amato just described. The prince will always, emphasis in the original, always be able to plant incriminating evidence on two characters, and it will be absolutely impossible for the characters to detect his actions. Right. The adventurers will be accused, the queen will shout for their execution, etc., etc. But, Um, like, how? I guess that's up to the DM to figure out how, but I still feel like that, that might be some of the holes you were talking about, Julia. Like, there's so many ways you know this could go awry and and then you have to like keep repeating actions right like keep repeating the same thing to get the result of accusing the players or you know having them yeah whatever you know and then basically the jack's supposed to flee the players are supposed to pursue him and they basically pursue him out of the module and depending on whether or not the the dm is trying to link this up with uh through the looking glass you might end up in Through the Looking Glass, or you might just be dumped back in the dungeon that you started in, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty much the module. Yeah, and, and so it kind of devolves into this giant melee, uh, but the player's goal explicitly is to chase the prince, get away from all the fighting, mm-hmm. and eventually end up out of the module. I will be... I'm noting that for future reference. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um... Uh, so yeah, that's, and that's straight through chapters, whatever, 10, 11, uh, 12, um, 11, 12, maybe, Alice's mm-hmm. Evidence, and yep, that's the last chapter. Do we have any last thoughts about Dungeon Land before we maybe talk about what we want to talk about in Land Beyond the Magic Mirror? It's flawed, but there's stuff that doesn't want to kill you. <laughs> Again, I am noting that for future reference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... Uh, we should talk about the illustrations a little bit, just because we talked about them so much in New Alice. Oh, um, true. Mostly, I think they're kind of just... I mean, they're some classic D&D interior artists, but they don't do it for me. I don't... Yeah. No. I was they... going to bring them up, but then I started flipping through and I was like, you know, these don't really look like they came out of the module, except for uh, there's like one of the Hatter and one of the, the, I don't know, maybe the March Hare, maybe the White Rabbit. I don't know. It looks kind of alice The Hatter one is a little bit strange. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I do like the illustration of the, um, the mock dragon turtle partially polymorphed into a... Uh, what is partially polymorphed into a gorgon? Anyway. That's right, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it doesn't really look like a I don't know, maybe it looks like partially polymorphed into a gorgon. I don't know. It's a little but it is really well done, so there's only one piece of art in these two modules that made me go, yes, this kind of sells me on the whole concept. Mm-hmm. But that's that's actually in through the looking glass, 
where there's this one illustration when you meet the walrus and the carpenter who show up in person of just like a side face of this kind of suspicious looking adventurer fighter looking dude like you know like clearly muscly and stubbly just kind of like looking suspiciously at the walrus and the carpenter who are striding up being like hey <laughs> we want to talk yeah. to you and uh, like that's kind of the most effective illustration i felt like at juxtaposing these two like very very different source materials that are colliding here one other thing i'd like to comment uh since i have a physical copy of dungeon land in front of me the pdf copies that we link to uh do not come with the front and back cover scans uh for whatever reason they do come with the interior cover scans which are maps uh but the cover illustration for dungeon land is uh, a picture of four adventurers five adventurers two of whom are being picked up by this giant bird and as far as i can tell this is a scene that doesn't happen in this module. It's from, it's, it's the rock in Land Beyond the Magic Mirror. So I'm not totally sure why it ended up on the cover of this module, but they were yeah. published, I think, pretty much back-to-back, -back, uh, written together. Yeah. Um, so the art probably was done at the same time as well. Yeah, but you know, you also have the first scene, I think it's the first drawing in Dungeon Land. It's like a players getting beat up by venus flytraps which also doesn't happen in this like i i think that is one of the mod one of the encounters that's added i think that's tiny garden tiny encounter garden? uh f which is the oh. jack in, i think i think that's the jack in the pulpit pulpit encounter i just thought um, they were then flowers okay no, yeah, yeah it, they kind of pull in a flower-based encounter from through the looking glass into this one but they have another flower encounter in uh magic mirror Okay. Well, yeah, lots okay. of traditional D&D illustrations. <laughs> Before we leave Dungeon Land behind, by the way, let me just gripe at Gygax for one more moment. Because the Jack of the Pulpit encounter, there's like a preacher flower that can, you know, that can fascinate you. And if you make the mistake of listening to him, you have to roll and um, you roll 2d20, which is crazy. Any role that exceeds the character's wisdom score indicates that Jack in the Pulpit has beguiled the individual into an alignment change um, closer to being neutral, okay? With oh, right. With appropriate consequences. See Dungeon Master's Guide, page 25, for a detailed explanation of these consequences. Look, like, changing your character's alignment by this kind of thing with such high odds is bad enough, but... Then there's like negative consequences for your experience gain, if I remember right, when you change alignment in old AD and D. The guy got imposing right. on you, and you didn't even have a choice. Like that's yeah. just a bridge too far. Yep. Although I will say I noticed the two D twenty as well, but since we had a two D ten roll under during the croquet game, and there are a number of typos in these modules, I would not be too shocked if that two D twenty were a typo. I would also sense. expect mm. that most GMs actually ran it as 2D20 anyway, because that's what's on the page. Yeah, but for sure. Okay. Now, there is a whole second module that I think we all read, and I don't think I've got the time in my day today to go through it in as much detail as we did Dungeon Land, but there's still a lot to talk about. I ha Yeah, I have several comments. Um, I think this module is flawed in many of the same ways that we've talked about and a bunch of new exciting ways <laughs> uh, or at least several new exciting ways 
Um, one of which is, remember when I said that that last encounter is a big melee that you're supposed to run away from, and mm -hmm. also that there are things in this module that don't want to kill you? Neither of those is really the case in yeah, Life Beyond the Magic Mirror. That's essentially true, though there is one kind of kind area that I do want to talk about. Um, yes. But yeah, let's jump around Beyond the Magic Mirror, because you're talking about the climactic combat. It, it does it, go more or less in book order, uh, kind of, uh, just like Dungeonland, um, with compromises made, like Dungeonland. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay, you know what? Actually, let's go through this in order of the module, because we should, we should end on that last fight. It's, it's definitely something. Um, yes. But the first thing in this is you're in a house. And maybe you came through a mirror, well, uh, you know, actually you can end up coming into the magic mirror land from a different direction if you took a boat at the end of dungeon land, like that's very possible. But let's say your DM had you fall through a mirror or whatever in a yeah. dungeon. Then you come out in the mirror house, even though you were not in a house to begin with. And that's the whole, the concept of the mirror here gets a little bit shaky, but whatever. Sorry, I do want to break in just to mention uh, explicitly uh, that like New Alice, uh, these modules also do the fanon thing of Dungeonland and or uh, Wonderland and uh, uh, the Looking Glass Land being basically neighbors in the same place, physically next to each other, or you can get to them through each other, uh, which isn't really part of the book, even though some characters do pop up uh, in both places, but. Well, I, not, not really. I mean, the messenger uh, well, you're talking about? The, the messengers, yeah. The, the March Hare and the Mad Hatter do kind of put in a cameo in Through right. the Looking Glass. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Any, anyway, um, so yeah, the Mirror House. Here's the thing. Here's, there's a lot of things about the Mirror House. One of it is that it's the home of Merlin, who's one of the old school D&D PCs. Um, Dr. D.R. Merlin in this context. What I remember from Merlin is that he used to use guns, like in combat, and he's just- That makes sense. Those, he's one of those classic old characters. And here oh. he's like a, you know, oh, he's a arch wizard who also uses technology. Fine. That's all cool. He's got a house filled with anachronisms. That's kind of also cool. Yeah. And what I kind of like about this first part is that it's actually kind towards the players. Merlin has even left them a note saying like, oh, sorry, I'm out. Like, you know, feel free to make yourselves at home. You know, take food if you need it and help yourself any small items you need. Just like, don't go crazy. And, mm -hmm. and Gygax reiterates that. It's like, if the PCs don't like loot the place or burn it to the ground or just like, they can take some stuff, whatever, it's fine. You can go like grab a VHS player if you really want it or like, you know, any of these weird anachronistic things. He even mentions they might be worth something outside. And so I was, I just would have expected from my, kind of my previous Gygax experience for there to be harsh consequences or something to stop the players from just like mucking around in the house. But in fact, mucking around in the house is like the most freedom that they have in these entire pair of modules, I would say. I yeah. think that's, that's right. Although the weird thing about this house to me is that it's so much of the module. Yeah, it Pages is. four through nine inclusive are all just, uh, no, four through eight inclusive are all just this house. Five pages worth of just wandering around through anachronisms. Um, guy is a, a classic war game player. There's a, a sandbox for 
playing with miniatures in one of the rooms. Polyhedral um, dice. There is yeah. electricity. Uh, I think I mentioned call lightning being off limits. Uh, I'm wondering whether it might interact poorly with the uh, electricity in the house, although that's being supplied by a lightning elemental. Yeah, and um, the refrigerator is being powered by a cold elemental. Yeah. 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 Uh, there are some bad consequences for taking the technology. It cancels out some of your magic items uh, later on. Um, and you're not supposed to be able to figure out what any of the technology is even. Uh, but yeah. This is like very contrary to the, the manse previously where we had no description of the rooms and this <laughs> is a description of everything. But I honestly had so much fun reading these descriptions. Like in the library, if you use detect magic, some of the books will be revealed to be like Wild West novels and like um, something that said like lewd periodicals about the quote unquote opposite gender, which I was just like, wait, opposite gender of what? <laughs> like, I mean, whoever's even, you know, the book, it's magic. whoever's OK, fair enough. <laughs> At least they're doing that. At first, I was thinking, like, maybe he's assuming that all the party is is Ben. And then I was like, OK, I, I think he was trying to be a little bit better. To, no, you know. no, Tori, you're wrong. It, it was definitely assuming that the party was all men. Well, uh, I think it was assuming that that Merlin only had pictures of women specifically. Okay. I guess, but, yeah, but sense. that's but it says the opposite gender. Um, I know, which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, of course, you know, like let's put aside the whole very straight thing first place and just say like that is so odd. But yeah, okay, you know, I oh, was yeah. just thinking about it too because I was thinking like were like the only people playing D&D back then like mostly dudes like yeah Gygax thought I guess so, at the very so. Least. yeah I know right? I I didn't enjoy this area that much because it felt very pointless to me it, it is. um and <laughs> mm -hmm. it's a lot of text and even inside of this exploration there's still these annoying on rails bits so Part of it is for the joke, right? But there is the reed organ that's broken and no amount of trying magical or otherwise will make the object function, move it or harm it in any way. It's just permanently there. Yeah. And later on, yeah, okay, Heward fixed the grandfather clock and didn't get a chance to get to the organ. So it's kind of like explained, but it's still like annoying to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It would certainly get old out of proportion with the page space. That is definitely right. true. It's fun to read in the like couple pages it takes to read, but I don't know about playing through it necessarily. Like it would be fun at first um, to explore. But... The other main thing I want to talk about here, because once I kind of realized what was going on, I was horrified, is the chess game, because mm -hmm. a a large portion of the map this doesn't actually take up much space in the module, but a lot of the map is the chessboard, right? And it's laid out well, with chess the, um, It's a relatively small part of the full map. It is a, a whole map to itself. But oh, of okay. the, the world map, it's a relatively small area. Once again, I think you shrink when you get onto it and then kind of expand back out. Um, which, of course, is, again, different from the book, where most of the book happens on the chessboard. Here, it's a self-contained little area that you get through. And then much later on, somewhere completely different is the whole eight-square business at the very end of the module. Okay, right. Um, but so there, there's a chessboard. You'll probably want or need to navigate it. I don't know. And need. You need to, okay. Uh, yeah, you, you paid more attention to the maps and how things are connected, Julia. Oh, need, that's even worse. But anyway, so there's, there's all the pieces laid out on it, that sort of thing. When you enter a square, 
you fight the piece that's there, and they all have D&D stats. It's like, you know, pawns are these little fighters, and bishops are ogre mages, and the king is a shambling mound for yeah. some yeah. reason. For some reason. And, and the queens are lamias, which will come up later as well. Right. And so you go in, you fight a piece. When you beat the piece, you become the piece. And then you make a move like that piece. And then an opponent piece tries to attack you if possible. And then you have to fight them and you become that piece and so on and so forth. And at first glance, that seems clever. But then I realize right. that what this comes down to is a whole bunch of combats against a single opponent, repeating opponents, just D&D combats. Like, oh, you have to fight another elephant. Roll for initiative. Yeah. And you're going to get rewarded based on, like, how big of people you can beat up. And then Gygax even says at the end, if in one unbroken series of movements and combats on the chessboard fields, the party manages to eliminate all the pieces and pawns of both red and white, you may grant them additional magic items, a wand of wonder and a bag of beans. But this would get so old by the second fight. Yeah. Oh, it would just was... be crushingly boring. I was kind of confused about this because he seemed to imply that, like, if the DM knew the rules of chess, it could somehow make it more interesting. But, like, how is that chess? <laughs> they're just fighting. They're not, you know, they're, I don't know. Anyway. And it could have been solved by, like, laying the chessboard down in front of the players, setting up the pieces, being like, okay, you're trying to get to this from this end to the other. Uh, you take a piece, you become that piece. If you take another piece, you become that piece, and you have to move like that piece. How are you going to do it? And just totally ignore the whole, like, D&D combats against, like, you know, 10 or, or 24 hit dice fighters. Like, you yep. just didn't have uh, to do it. 31 pieces I count right now. Uh, I might have gotten that a little bit wrong, but about 30 pieces on the chessboard altogether. Ah. Uh, yeah. And, um... Maybe it's a full 32. Maybe I missed one. Some of the type is a little bit hard to read. Um, uh, the, the moves, the chess moves are made by the GM, and the players don't know where they're going, so they can't even map very well. The players also get yeah. chances to move or rest. Um, in fact, I think after, I, I think to modify your comment, Amato, mm -hmm. uh, my read of it is that it's intended that after a fight, the players get to decide what to do, which might be to move to an adjacent square or might be to rest in their current square. And after they do that is when another piece will try to attack them if possible. But even still, yeah. it's... It's not yeah. much... I think you're probably right, and that is a little better, just in that at least the players have some agency, but it's not much better because these fights, man, there's just nothing. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's more fun for the... The GM who gets to like play a game of chess against themselves, you know. Yeah, like, interspersed with really boring D and D combats. Yeah. Yep. Oh well. I've never really liked combat heavy games. Like, or at least I want flavor in my combat at the very least. So. Oh, and if you beat up enough pieces, uh, an invisible servant, an aerial servant, shows up when you're leaving the area and just hands you some magic items. Great. Yeah, not that you have okay. any clue beforehand. Just because. But, right. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, none of them are even very interesting. It's like, ooh, a plus three cloak of protection. Yes, that is a good item. But there's no flavor or anything to it. Yep. Okay. That's all. That's all. I just want to talk about the chessboard. That's fair. Yep. Yeah, and then there's... Uh... 
yeah, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who are monks, <laughs> twin monks. Who do not actually want to kill you. I guess that's the other exception, or no, the other major exception I can think of in this module. Yeah, they're another side quest. Merlin. They're another side quest NPC, which I do mm -hmm. like. They are. Uh, unfortunately, the side quest is to go kill the stuff from, the, from Jabberwocky, uh, which is so common in Alice stuff, and I just hate it. I can't stand, oh, yeah, now you're going to go fight the Jub Jub Bird and the Jabberwock. Except, yeah. of course, it's going to be called the Jabberwocky instead of the Jabberwock because people can't read. Right. <laughs> uh... One thing I want to say about Tweedledum and Tweedledee, by the way, they're high-level monks because, I don't know, why not? There's a whole table with their powers, like listing all their monk powers and stuff, their percentages to hide in shadows and things. Uh, Tweedledee is one level higher. And, yeah. and so Gygax has to write their stats out twice. Like, I mean, slightly different. If there's any, I just don't get it. Why would you not just say uh, they have the same stats because they're friggin' Tweedledum and Tweedledee? Yeah, they yeah. talk in unison. They do everything together. Like, how is one of them one level higher? Yeah, they agree to have a battle, and then Tweedledee wins because he's one level higher. My most, well, no, the math is flatter than that. It would be much <laughs> closer to 50-50. Then 100%. Two attacks per round versus... Oh, no, they're, they're both five for two rounds. No, you're right, you're right. Uh, but um, my favorite, least favorite part of this encounter is that they're lawful neutral. No, no Wonderland-type character should ever be lawful neutral in alignment. Like, this... What? No, no that's very and, weird. And also, yeah. the text is just... They will adhere to the letter of any agreement they make, is one of the first things that's said about them. Later on, it said, um, we'll give you this sock full of pearls we got helping Wally and his pal uh, if you fetch the treasure, if you do the side quest. And then at the end, uh, they will give the party a specific magic item, a buckler wand, uh, but the pearls will not be given in any event, although one of the pair will have them. So... You can't reconcile these three things. They will adhere <laughs> yeah. to the letter of any agreement. They tell you what they're going to give you, and then they don't give it to you. So, I don't know. I don't well, know. That I, was almost the most Alice-y bit of text, because it contradicted <laughs> itself. But almost, I don't think it was intentional. Just, no. Yeah. It's just not paying attention. The, yeah. the one thing that I will say for the Tweedledum and Tweedledee thing encounter with the quest is that at least it's not the walrus and the carpenter, which I did not enjoy reading at all. <laughs> no. And, for, and I, I, you know, I love the walrus and the carpenter, the poem, you know, and it's, uh, it's such yeah, a classic. I mean, I, and I so guess, to see this, it was kind of like, yeah. I guess it's okay in the sense that they give you a side quest and they will betray you. Right. Uh, because that's who they are. Um, and right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're if you greedy accept for the, the quest oysters. from the walrus and the, gar and the carpenter and you don't expect betrayal, then, <laughs> then you're unfamiliar the other with thing. the source material. <laughs> yes. Now, but the, the, the carpenter is a thief who is going to be trying to steal stuff from you. Hopefully just oysters and pearls if you do the side quest, but otherwise like your actual stuff. Um, I don't remember exactly how pickpockets work, but I think there's some calculation that involves a relative level of the thief and the target. I hope The so. carpenter is a level 15 thief. This is a level 9 to 12 module, and the carpenter has base pickpockets of 125%. <laughs> the carpenter is just going to walk away with all of the party's magic items if they don't kill them. Yeah, it's well... It's very possible. Hopefully, also, they, 
they just waste the walrus and the carpenter on site because they deserve it. Uh, yeah. I was also wondering why the walrus wasn't also a thief. And then I remember, I realized something. Oh, yeah. Everyone has to be a designated um, D&D race in order to have a class in this because mm. it's so rules strict. It just like... Yeah. We can't start introducing new rules because that breaks everything or we have to specify if we do. So I was like, that's what kind of makes it boring is you can't have anything that's not, you know, a human or orc or whatever that actually does stuff very well. Yeah. Well, on the bright Although side, the walrus will... isn't polymorphed. It's just a walrus. That just talks. a walrus also. Yeah. Just a walrus. And if you did play through Dungeon Land... Uh, the, for their side quest, even though they're going to betray you, they do attempt to blame uh, the White Rabbit for their plight, which, if you play Dungeonland, is entirely plausible. <laughs> right. And actually makes it maybe a little bit more likely that you'd try to do it. Anyway, so there's that side quest. There's the Jabberwocky monsters to kill uh, afterwards. Yeah. Uh, you can um, talk to Humpty Dumpty, but not a big deal. I mean, except... Uh, there's the, the sheep who's yeah, running the sh a shop. But the sheep doesn't really sell you anything, does she? Uh, no, very explicitly, although this one is a little bit nice. The more the players have their characters attempt to tell exactly what... The more the players have their characters attempt to tell exactly what is in this shop, the more vague and uncertain its contents will become. <laughs> this is another place where there's at least a little bit of... Lewis Carroll in the adventure. On the oh. other hand, the sheep woman is a Lumia noble casting an illusion who will try to kill the party. Well, so, you, you should have assumed that because she is female in a D&D module. So, yep, we'll know. get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Humpty Dumpty with a truly ridiculous army coming out if you try to take any of the... Humpty Dumpty is really easy to kill. You just tip him over and he, tra and he breaks open. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, all, all the king's, the king's horses and all the king's, the king's men, men. Oh god, looked absolutely ridiculous to me. But fortunately, it turns out that it's just an illusion. Right. Uh, the twenty-four woolly rhinoceroses, ten hit dice each, and seventy-two ten hit dice frost giants are yes. not actually there. Yeah, but having an illusion in in this you know context is pretty mean because why would you assume it's not twenty-four woolly rhinoceroses and seventy-four frost giants? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it sounds like it has to make sense. So yeah. there's no like yeah. standard of logic where you'd be like, there can't be 72 frost giants here. Uh, so I would just, I would never disbelieve that illusion to begin with. Yeah. So the chat, and then, uh, sorry, anybody? No, let, let's get to the end here. I mean, you know. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to name the encounters there's, off. There's the, well, yeah, yeah, go there, for it. It's just not that the interesting. There's the lion and the unicorn and the white king. Yeah. Um, there's uh, the white and red knights. Both of those encounters are rather boring. The knights, at least, there's there tries to be some humor. It's possible that you can uh, avoid fighting anybody and getting uh, escorted. But even if you get escorted, bad things are likely to happen. And if you don't get escorted, you have to do more fighting. It's very boring. Eventually, you get to the end of the adventure, chap uh, corresponding to chapter nine, um, and. Queens come out, and they're not the queens from the chessboard, because in the module, we've left, left the chessboard way behind, but they're still congratulating you for attaining the eighth square, whatever that is, which is text in the module. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead and take over, Amato. Okay. So the thing is, the 
climactic, big, chaotic fight scene in Dungeon Land. Gygax wanted to railroad you, but he knew what, like, it was clear what was supposed to happen, and it was supposed to be you flee with your lives. Mm. This encounter, I read through it, and I was just like, oh my god, this is a total party kill several times over. And then you get to the end, yeah. and he says, well, it's not necessarily a total party kill. Oh, god. So I don't know. <laughs> to start off with, to start yeah. off with, they put crowns on all of your heads, and they're crowns of delusion that make you think... Okay, they're going to kill you later, and unless you specifically take them off your head while actively disbelieving, you'll think that it's still on your head? No, you'll think I'm... that it's off your head when it's really still oh, on your head. You'll think yeah. that it's off your head when it's really still on your head, but... Why Why would anyone actively suspect that it's actually still on your head in the first place? I don't know. Um, and then there's a big feast, and all kinds of, you know, strange animals and such come in, and, like, they, they lay out the food and the stuff. And the thing is, it's a succession of horrible things that are going to kill you of various types. Um, there's going to be barbed devils and larvae and were kangaroo mat rats and carnivorous apes and, and giant wolverines. The food, like, and there's the, a mimic as a, a roast, or a joint of roast meat as a mimic. Like, I thought this was kind of hilarious, honestly, but you're right. It's so many things. The, the queens are night hags, and there's a bag of devouring. Uh, okay. Yes. Like, and there's this, the tactics are weird, uh, specifically so that they can be references. The barbed devil is going to be using illusions to make the queens appear to be vanishing into some of the dishes just because that's something that happens in the book. Right. There's a lot of... There's several savor suck effects also, including charms coming from uh, the barbed devil and all these things. But I'm not sure they hardly matter because you didn't get a save against those crowns when you put on the crowns, did you? No, uh, you don't think so. No, unless and, it's implicitly a save to disbelieve, but usually those have to be active. And yeah, when, and it, it basically just says immediately you start believing that everyone looks regal when you put on the crown. That's and it's like, and even if you take off the crown, if you say, "Oh, I'm taking off the crown," by the way, because I don't trust him, that doesn't save you because the crown's still on your head. And then mm -hmm. when all these creatures turn on you and start attacking, quote. Characters still wearing the crowns of delusion will believe the attacks be loving touches and kisses from a crowd of admirers. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote an interrobang next to that in my notes. So, uh, maybe some player is like, uh, I'm, I'm not a touchy person, I'm pushing them back. Maybe. But equally plausible, everyone's like, yeah, okay, sure, sure, let's, let's see where this is going. And then the DM's like, and you're all dead. Yeah. And, end and of module. You get, <laughs> like, you end have, of campaign. What, what happened? You have a mimic, a black pudding... Barb devils, night hags, like another barb devil, 24 larvae, 18 eblis servants, were kangaroo rats, giant wolverines, 26 larvae, carnivorous apes, night bags, and bullywug footmen. And it doesn't say how many total there are of, of the these, but like in waves of six. So you all oh, of these, yeah, almost further, all of these are multiples. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was reading the but, list, but the 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 strong monsters are said to attack the weak monsters, uh, but the the bullywug footmen, um, it's in the description of the doors. Um, 
Uh, there are 36 in all, six beside each door. Oh my gosh. See, it doesn't really matter at that point. You just have a ridiculous number of creatures, like, melee. Even if they're not all attacking you, like, attacking around, like, you're just gonna die. Well, yeah, but that, that's even if you know that there's a combat happening. Exactly. As, written, as written, you would have to be like, no, do not put that crown on my head, you queens, at the end of Alice in Wonderland. That's where you would have to be at in order to have, like, <sighs> any... Or someone would have to be like that. In order for well, the no, they even... What's that? The crowns teleport onto your head. Oh, God. I forgot they, about that part. Yeah. Nobody picks them up. You they don't just have a choice. Up. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, yeah. We were talking about saving against taking them off, but you don't even have, like, a choice about a save about putting them on, really. They just they just do. I, there's just no out written into this fight, as far as I can tell. It's like... Well, what Gygax said at the end is, all in all, this is set up to be a real trial for the party. Uh, some understatement there. If the players are not skilled, they will certainly lose their characters here if you DM the encounter but, properly. Uh, more yeah. of jamming philosophy. Um, this is, however, not to suggest that you set up the destruction of a group of alert and careful players. Allow their suspicions to give them an edge when the action begins. Give them an opportunity to decide what to, they will do when the whole place breaks into chaos. If they aren't intoxicated, because, by the way, you're being served regular wine. Oh, right. <laughs> you're directed to look up the rules for intoxication, drunkenness, in the DMG. Um, if they aren't intoxicated, and if they divest themselves of the crowns, they have a fighting chance. Exactly. Doesn't, Those doesn't two conditions. Know, yeah. Look, like, and I get it. It's just that, as written, that, sec that last part is what gets me. If they divest themselves of the crowns, after Gygax has made it, almost impossible that anyone will divest themselves of the crowns because you need to take it off your head right. while like disbelieving against the effect now, i don't know right because you don't that's right because even if you take it off your head you'll it'll you'll still think oh, you're wearing okay. it right? I, I, i'm misreading this i'm sorry the crowns have the the apparent effect of making everybody seem more charismatic and if someone takes it off they will look they will look less charismatic to the in the eyes of everyone else who still has a crown so I'm sorry, I misread that. But even so, it's terrible. Because until a wearer actually disbelieves the effects of the item, meaning the increased charisma, and does so while taking off the crown, the mind-bending dwemer will deceive the wearer into thinking the headgear has been removed when it's actually still in place. Yeah, which means you could take it off, but if you weren't, like, disbelieving its effects at the same why, time, why then would you would, I disbelieve, it would still affect you. Yeah. I might not trust this crown, but why would I think disbelieve that it is making me look more regal and, you know, and charismatic. Why would I disbelieve that? Ever? I think maybe the implication is that, like, at some point, you feel this feeling, right? Like, the thing is, it's not written in. But the only thing I can extrapolate is, like, you, you feel regal, and then you get suspicious and go, wait a second, as soon as I put this crown on, I felt different. So you have to, like, go, I'm not regal and charismatic. Take off your crown. Yeah. I don't know. It's maybe, not written in. <laughs> maybe the idea is that you're supposed to just believe beyond all available evidence that these are cursed magic items. And since you can't just take off cursed magic items, you have to disbelieve that mm. you that are you were able to take off the magic off? item. Yeah. Julia, that might actually be it. That there must be this level of like of rules mastery of D and D that is expected here. Where it might be, yeah. Oh, I don't trust this, but if it was cursed, I wouldn't be able to take it off. That's got to be the logic. Oh, but yeah. I still don't... I still don't approve in the slightest. 
Um, yeah. And anyway, it's so it, yeah. if you win, then congratulations. Uh, you won. You can loot a few things, I guess. Uh, quite a few. Yeah, it's 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 reasonably good treasure, although it is random. Uh, but you're likely to get a ring. You definitely get a rod, um, a miscellaneous magic item, armor, possibly a sword, some other non-sword weapon, a couple of random potions and scrolls. Yeah, no, that that is good stuff. You're right. Uh, and and a lot of gold pieces worth of treasure, or yeah. at least a fair amount. Um, and that's your magical experience in the realm of Lewis Carroll, I guess. Yeah. Scary Gygax's version of our <laughs> magical experience. <laughs> yeah. And then going back to things that show up later, uh, the monsters here are nothing special, um, including the Oliphant, which shows up, as far as I can tell, because uh, Alice sees uh, some flowers from a distance being fertilized uh, by elephants instead of bees, um, because they must be really huge or something. Um, and this Oliphant spelling is just because Lord of the Rings, uh, because it definitely yeah. doesn't show up in Alice. I know, I was um, thinking the same thing. I was like, and it's a new monster too. I was like, random, okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, there, the spells, there's a couple of like Merlin's Ogre and Merlin's Void, which are the spells that Merlin leaves for the party in the house uh, are nothing special. A lot of the magic items, I think all of the magic items are nothing that I can really remember, but this in, this module also includes spells Aid, yeah. Spook, Whispering Wind, Phantom Steed, all of which I think of as mainstays of future editions. Well, we played so many AD&D 2nd Edition-based computer games, and it's like, oh, you know, the first thing you do in the morning is you cast Aid on everybody, because it's these temporary hit points that stick around over your normal hit points. So yeah, that jumped out at me too. It's like, oh, it's this is where Aid first appeared, because mm -hmm. yeah, for a while it was a yeah. real standard. Yep. So in New Alice, we spent a lot of time kind of talking about where the tone of that fic kind of successfully matched, where it didn't match Carol, but was doing something interesting in its own right, and where it was a kind of a tonal mismatch. I don't feel like we need to have that conversation about these modules. <laughs> well, I would be I would be very curious to ask what your favorite part of the modules are. But I guess before I'm allowed to do that, I'm going to have to ask what your least favorite thing about these modules is. I think my least favorite thing about these modules is everything from page nine on of Land Beyond the Magic Mirror. <laughs> it's pretty irredeemable. Yeah. I mean, we kind of already talked about, you know, the railroading in, in both of them. And, you know, just some of the stuff, it's just... It had so much potential. I think it's just disappointing um, that everything ended up so bland. And also, yeah, like, yeah, not, I don't know, not I, well done mechanically sometimes, which is surprising. I don't, I don't quite want to call the modules joyless because they probably weren't for Gygax and might not have been for some of his players. But... Uh, they did not spark joy for me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm willing to believe this is just a really different generation of D&D where, like, everything was about treasure and fighting. And, you know, the well, creativity just wasn't there, I guess. <laughs> sure. But like I said, I, 
I genuinely enjoy modules like, for example, Temple of Elemental Evil. And mm -hmm. these don't have the redeeming qualities of T1 through 4 to me, for example. That's um, fair, yeah. Even if we're talking about that generation uh, of adventures. Uh, X2, Castle Amber, um, another fan fiction module that maybe we could even do at some point. I, um, I've never read the source, but that would be really interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's got weird, weird things in it, uh, but there's still something to it that I think these modules kind of lack somehow, mm -hmm. even while still having a lot of the same, what I perceive as flaws that are from this different era of adventuring. I would say my least favorite thing about these modules, even though there's a lot that I complain about, is just the lack of exploration that everything is so railroaded in the way the maps are set up. Like, I think what makes me so happy when I get to the mirror house, like I said, isn't that there's super interesting things to do there, though there's like some, there could be some fun stuff with the anachronisms. It's just that the players get to go, okay, well, let's go over here. Let's check out, let's see what's in the kitchen. Let's, you know, go up here or go down there or, yeah. you know, check out this. And like, there's, there's like nowhere else in the module you can really do that. I mean, kind of in some of the overland portions or like some of the large garden areas. You can do that on the chessboard. Oh, God. Yeah. You know what you're going to find, but you can do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had the most fun reading descriptions of, like, what was actually in the environment. It's just unfortunate you didn't get to interact with it for any, for any reason to interact with it. Well, are we ready to talk about our favorite parts of the module? Or, Tori, did you get enough of a chance to complain? Oh, yeah. I've oh. been complaining this whole time. No worries. <laughs> What's your favorite parts of this fanfic? That is a tough question. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I had good answers for New Alice that I don't have for these modules. There's, um, uh, does the Hat of Disguise count? Sure. The fact that that's a magic item that exists now? Yeah. I like that. Well, you could expand that just to like that through this module more more lewis carroll dna snuck into dnd like, like like you said that's where the deck of illusions comes from that that stick around for maybe ever i don't know like a lot of those kinds of oh yeah no there's more card themed and hat themed and you know chess themed probably or egg themed like i'd probably i, I didn't really look into like the humpty dumpty items too much but egg like, yes uh chess not so much i guess not but... Definitely hats, though. And hats are, like, you know, important in D&D, so. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'll say the Mock Turtles side quest, I think, was, was better than most of the rest of it for me. I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit of concept, because while I'm not really a fan of the idea of just, like, dropping the players randomly into this module like Gygax suggests you do, I do really like the idea of Gygax having this like well-established mega dungeon that lots of groups go through and they know the different areas and they can explore different parts of it. And over there is a portal to Wonderland. And that's like a known quantity and you can just go and <laughs> mess around or explore Wonderland or lead new people into there anytime you want. That I find very charming. Yeah, and I think I could do something with this. You know, like there's... Man, you know, for the most part, yeah, I don't really want to walk all the way through this module. But there are pieces of it that are really charming. And I feel like, you know, I could insert 
players into this world, I probably would change a lot of the monsters, basically have a lot less fighting, have more exploration. But, you know, like those charming bits, like, you know, the, the little charming bits and pieces could definitely come into something. Toy, you're basically saying you would write your own D&D uh, Alice in Wonderland adventure. Yeah, kind of. But I mean, I think I could base it on this. Like the structure was there. Like, you know, we mentioned it walks through the books in order. You know, the areas are there. I just I change a lot of the details. But like the I feel like you could use this really well as a template. All right. Well, with that glowing recommendation from all of us, <laughs> I definitely. Uh, yes. What's that? Uh, that that you can get the PDFs for free through the link that we talked about before. That's a good thing. <laughs> that, is, that, is, yes. that is actually very cool. Um, I was a big fan of that back in the day also. That's kind of why I was excited to do it. It's like an AD&D adventure. I'd never seen one before. And here Wizards was just Ooh. giving me some for free um, for me to like try using. That's very neat. And there's even like a neat little kind of historical introduction on that page. I encourage people to go, um, you know, read that and download them if you're at all curious about the contents. And if any listeners have played through this module or adapted to your modern gaming groups, I definitely want to hear about it. Yeah. I can't provide those stories because, again, I was like 13 and I don't remember anything. Well, we'll just have to play through it again, Amato. <laughs> Sounds... <laughs> okay, but we'll do it in 4th edition so that every combat <laughs> is extremely tactical and takes about an hour and a half. Oh, God. So you're talking about my nightmare. And Julia, thanks so much for coming on to talk about something with us again. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll be able to do it again, whether it's Alice in Wonderland based once more or whether we spread out a little bit. And whether it's a D&D module or something with uh, a little bit more content. <laughs> yeah, this was <laughs> our first content, time Yeah, talking about a D&D module. I think it went okay. <laughs> it went fine, but yeah, it's it's... The narrative is implicit, kind of inherently based on the structure of a module. Right, right. Uh, it only really unfolds in play. Um, I don't. I, I have my reservations about how much narrative would unfold from these particular modules, but <laughs> it's always going to be the case that reading one isn't the same experience as playing one. True. For sure. And that brings us to the narrative end of our podcast. This has been episode 116 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, Dungeon Land and the Land Beyond the Magic Mirror by Gary Gygax. Uh, you can find a link to it via Wayback Machine um, on our show notes. And they're still there. They're zip files. You might not have had to deal with zip files in a few years, but uh, you're, you can probably still open them. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Uh, our podcast is edited by Dom Davis, and I think she's the, the one who has most recently played Dungeons & Dragons out of all of us. Unless, Tori, you've been doing gaming I don't know about. No. Not at all the right. moment. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, please contact us. We're on Twitter at RetroFanfic, Facebook at RetroFanfic, Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective. You can send us an email at RetroFanficRetrospective at gmail.com. 
We also do have a Discord channel, which we at least pop into to record, though I've forgotten about it for a while. And we'll leave a link to there as well in the show notes. Feel free to come start a conversation about various things, but including fanfiction or old fanfiction. Um, you can also leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Julia. We are just three Earth life forms trying to survive in a world that doesn't make sense and wants to kill us. Until next time, take care. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank this you. This was fun. Yeah. That, that yeah. was fun. I'm glad we did that. I don't time. know. Sorry we made you read something so, uh... <laughs> no, it, was, I, it was my suggestion originally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did not remember the details about right, exactly... Right. Maybe I didn't have such strong opinions about it at the time, but... It was an interesting experience. Like, I don't mind reading yeah. things that are not great, as long as I get to talk about how they're not great. Yes.